So this week in the uh, Christian year, we move into the time, the season after Trinity. And um, as um, summer starts to increase, uh, the church year slows, you could say slows down a little bit as we move into um, the season after Pentecost, which sometimes called ordinary time. Today is the feast commonly known as Corpus Christi, uh, the Feast of the Body of Christ. And it always is the Thursday after Trinity Sunday. Now, um, most of you probably know that every Sunday is a celebration of Easter, and every Friday is a, is a remembrance or a celebration of Good Friday. And so every day of the week has a certain particular theme to it. And Thursdays are traditionally devoted to the Eucharist. And so <clears throat> this particular Thursday um, is especially marked out to remember the Eucharist. And it's only appropriate that it would happen on a Thursday, the day um, set aside in the church um, for the Eucharist. And this feast goes all the way back to the 13th century and to Belgium to a, a um, religious by the name of Juliana of Liege. Um, and she, the church has always kind of used Monday Thursday as a day to remember the Eucharist, Monday Thursday being the Thursday before Easter. But Monday Thursday is also the day we remember Jesus giving the commandment uh, that we would love one another, there's foot washing, we're anticipating the Feast of Good Friday, so the institution of the Eucharist is usually um, sort of sidestepped or, or just forgotten about because there's so many things going on. So Juliana had been longing because she was devoted from her youth, youth to the Eucharist. She'd been hoping that there could be a festival. Um, so she prayed about it and prayed about it and petitioned the Lord that um, there could be another festival for the Eucharist. And so after, after a while, she began having visions, and she had a vision of a full moon with a little black spot in it. And it was revealed to her that this vision meant that the church was this full, bright object that was lacking one thing. It was a, a feast specifically devoted to the Eucharist. And so she shared her vision with her confessor after, after about 20 years. And he said, well, this is good. This is a holy thing. We should share this with our bishops. Now, in the 13th century, um, a local bishop could institute a feast. The church wasn't sort of this, like, uh, um, top-down thing like it is now. So the bishop agreed we should have a festival to the Holy Eucharist. And so in, in Belgium, they started um, holding a festival on the first Thursday after Trinity um, to the Eucharist. And the archdeacon of this area eventually became Pope Urban IV. And so when he became Pope, he um, spread the feast to the whole Western Church. So in the year about 1246, it was this local feast in Belgium, and then by the year 1264, it had spread to the whole Western Church um, and really took off from there. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas in the following century um, would write hymns for the Feast of Corpus Christi and so on and so forth. Um, in Anglicanism, um, the feast was suppressed in 1548, but reinstituted in the 19th century, and is this day, it, 
to this day now kept in most of the Anglican communion, um, especially Anglo-Catholic parishes. parishes. Um, in Lutheranism, uh, this is uh, this this is one of the things that I love about Martin Luther. He was so like, you know, this is the way it is, and you know, there's no discussion. Um, this is how he felt about it. They they don't celebrate this in Lutheranism, and I'm I'm certainly not picking on Lutherans. This is just his 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 choice of words. I just love. Quote, this is from a homily. I am to no festival more hostile than this one because it is the most shameful festival. At no festival are God and his Christ more blasphemed than on this day, and particularly by the procession. For then people are treating the blessed sacrament um, with such ignominy that it becomes only play-acting and is just vain idolatry. With its cosmetics and false holiness, it conflicts with Christ's order and establishment because he never commanded us to carry on like this. Therefore, beware of such worship. So, um, even the, I, they, the feast was retained in the Lutheran church after his death, but around the year 1600, <laughs> they got rid of it. Um, but, it. But you also note, though, in that quote, he didn't like the festival because he thought it took away something from the Blessed Sacrament and the holiness of the sacrament. Um, we can debate that or not, but that's just the way that part of the church operates. Now onto the really good stuff. <laughs> so traditionally in the West, on the Feast of Corpus Christi, um, there's what's called a Eucharistic ador adoration, Eucharistic procession, where a host is put in this usually beautiful gold or brass um, case called a monstrance, and usually is perfect is round with it kind of looks like a big sun and the priest and the people will carry it around town um, and then they'll sing hymns in the church it's really 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 beautiful um, that would be the most prominent um, tradition associated with the feast but there are some local folk customs that I, I have to bring to your attention there is a um, custom um, that is of Spanish origin, called baby jumping, and it dates mm. back to the year 1620, and is uh, held on the Feast of Corpus Christi. On this day, some of the men of the town dress up like devils, and they have whips and castanets, and they lay babies in the street down on mattresses, and they jump over them. <laughs> no joke. Oh, and it's supposed to symbolize, symbolize like, um, like sort of the cleansing from original sin. Um, the origins of this are unknown, but it is, <laughs> it is something that happens in Spanish towns. Um, Pope Benedict XVI, His Holiness, has asked Spanish priests to distance themselves from this. <laughs> because, because... It is clear that it's baptism that <laughs> cleanses us from original sin, not a giant leap by an airborne devil. <laughs> uh, but it's fun. It's a folk tradition. Um, if you're ever in Spain near the Feast of Corpus Christi, look for that. Another Spanish tradition is the dancing egg. I don't know where this came from, but on the feast day of Corpus Christi, they, there's a... Um, 
like a fountain, a perpetual fountain um, at the Barcelona Cathedral, and they hollow out an egg and decorate it, and they put wax to close that hole, and they put wax in it to weight it down, and then they decorate this fountain with all sorts of local produce and flowers and in-season fruit, and they put the egg on top of the fountain, and the egg kind of spins around and dances. Um. <laughs> and that one also dates back back to a while. That one's more um, what's tame. It, what's it supposed to symbolize? Eh? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know if anybody knows. Um, it's just something that they do. It's really beautiful, though. Like, these fountains have flowers all over it, and why it's associated with the Feast of Corpus Christi, I couldn't tell you. Just one of those things that I read about and felt that I really, really needed to share. Yeah. That is uh, today's feast. Um, June the 18th is um, the feast day of Bernard Mazecki, who was a lake catechist and a martyr in Africa. Now, the 18th is Sunday, so his feast day is transferred to Monday. Well, actually, be translate transferred to Tuesday because there's a feast on Monday. But Bernard Mazecki is—I don't know why—but he's one of my favorite saints. I really want—I really want to um, share some things with you about about him. Um, he was born in uh, what's now known as Mozambique around the year 1861, and at the age of 12, he left for Cape Town, South Africa, and worked as a laborer and lived in the slums. But he looked around him and saw that, that the people around him were really, really affected by alcohol, and it, it caused all sorts of problems. So he refused to drink. drink. He just never, and didn't want to be corrupted by the situation around him. He um, worked during the day, and at night he attended classes in an Anglican school. And because of the teaching of the teachers there and the missionaries, he eventually um, became Christian. And um, was baptized on the 9th of March in 1886. And so he was given this training in European education, but he also had a gift for languages. So he, he knew English, and um, he knew Dutch, French, and then eight um, local African languages, which made him like just a really ideal worker to go out and preach the gospel in Africa. So eventually he ended up, in a, he was sent to Zimbabwe to work as a lay catechist, and he um, was sent to a little, little village, and he um, just kind of set up shop, he did morning and evening prayer, he took care of a garden, he mastered the local language and just developed relationships with all the people in the village. And then he opened up a school and really started, then he started making converts because he was, he was just very devoted to the children of the village and gave them education which everybody wanted um, for their children. He then moved his little like mission to a plateau by a grove of trees that were, were held to be sacred to um, some of the locals there. And he had the chief's permission, but he kind of angered the local tribal religious leaders because um, he cut down some trees and he carved crosses into all the others, which I think I just is just such a bold move. Um, and so this, start, this really made him unpopular. But he wasn't like he was trying, I mean, he was, 
it wasn't like he was totally unaware of like the religious tradition of the people, but he did want to tell them, let them know that Christ is supreme. Um, but he also used some of the nuances of the spirit religion to help lead people to Christ and um, preach the gospel to them. And over the course of five years, from 1891-96, I mean, he was just making converts like crazy. And the problem, though, being is that African nationalists looked at, uh, they hated the work of the missionaries. Um, everything seemed like it was, you know, colonial and, and ruining the culture, and they especially hated local Africans that were working with, you know, the colonial governments. Um, so there was an uprising, and they told Bernard to get out of there, you know, to go away. He was in trouble, and he said, well, I'm not, I'm not leaving my flock. I'm not leaving my people. Um, I work for Christ. I'm not abandoning my post. And so um, on the 18th of June in 1896, he, um, the, the people came into the mission, and they stabbed him with a spear. But he didn't die. And so his wife and one of their helpers went to go get some food and some blankets, and they're going to try and nurse him back to life, or, you know, make sure he was okay, if they could get more help. Well, as they were leaving, they saw a huge flash of light, and when they came back, his, uh, his body was gone. So um, now that spot has become a, a place of great devotion for um, Anglicans and other Christians in Africa. It's, it's like, it's almost like they're um, Canterbury. I mean, it's like, like Canterbury pilgrims going to visit the tomb of Beckett. Um, it's similar for Bernard Maseki. And there's a great festival around um, June 18th. And I think, I mean, if all that stuff wasn't enough, it's just like a lot of times saints are like monks or they're priests, you know, or they're nuns. <coughs> But Bernard Mazzecchi was a lay catechist. He was never ordained a deacon, never ordained a priest. He just was a hard-working man who was committed to the gospel and did a lot of great work. And I would venture to guess Clint and those Africans that we met, you know, three years ago who talked about all the sites that they had visited in Africa. One yeah. of them was Bernard Mazzecchi's um, cool. place of departure. You know, now, now that because of the work of Bernard Mazzecchi and evangelizing Africa, missionaries from Africa are coming here to evangelize us, which is, you know, this, this thing keeps going and going and going and going. The um, 19th is also the feast day of Sundar Singh, um, 1889. Uh, he was born in 1889, and he probably died in the year 1929, but no one really knows. So, He was born into a Sikh family in northern India. The Sikhs believe in one god, and they reject the caste system, and uh, they're founded about the year 1500. So it's, not, it's, it's a Hindu-type religion, but it's separated from Hinduism and Islam, and it's, it's their own thing. And Early on in his life, his mother sat him down at the feet of a guru, and he, he started learning. Well, when his mom died, he became really, really angry and um, took out a lot of the anger, uh, for, for whatever reason, on local Christians, uh, converts or missionaries. And finally, in his ultimate act of defiance, he took a Bible and, and just ripped out pages, one by one, and he burnt them um, and uh, did it in front of all his friends. 
And he got to a point where he was just full of despair. He couldn't figure out, like, there was no answer in Hinduism, no answer in Islam, no answer in his religion. And he had already made fun of Christianity, so he was going to kill himself. He was going to throw himself in front of a, um, a train. And then he had resolved to do this, and he went to sleep that night. He was going to do it the next day, and Jesus Christ appeared to him in a dream. And so he decided he was going to be Christian. And he met, like, a lot of resistance from his family, um, so much so that they all tr they, he was poisoned on several occasions. Uh, his brother tried to poison him. I think his dad tried to poison him. Uh, locals were throwing snakes in his house, um, trying to get demons to possess it. But he eventually was, um, was baptized. And then he sort of took a look around and tried to see, you know, how... I'm Christian, I'm, I'm in northern India, how am I going to reach these people? You know, now that I've find, found Christ, how can I bring Christ to everybody? So he adopted like traditional Hindu dress and traveled around uh, just with his bare feet and he was, preached the gospel and, and shared you know, what Christ had done for him and um, walked all around. And he would go into Tibet and he was really... Um, the poverty in Tibet and just how awful things were really impressed upon his heart so he would constantly go back to Tibet like year after year and year to try and help their situation. Um, he started having uh, mystical experiences, he was arrested, there was a lot of opposition because he was you know, start, you know, he was a convert, he was converting you know, Indians and had this mission to convert the people of India and eventually he was um, he went to the Anglican seminary and became an Anglican priest, but there was the opposition because he thought it would be best to just um, incorporate traditional Indian, you know, dress and things and um, Indian language into the worship. And people at the seminary tell him, "No, no, you should dress like, you know, get put on a cassock and um, do Anglican stuff." So he sort of renounced his preaching license and just he traveled around and um, preached the gospel and performed miracles and after a while he traveled to England and was just disgusted like after World War One and just disgusted by the the culture and like the materialism and the lack of faith and he went back to India but it was clear that he was he was not doing well he was just sort of failing um, but he just traveled around and preached the gospel went back into Tibet one day and disappeared. Nobody knows what happened to him. He might have uh, just died of exhaustion in the mountains. He might have been murdered. He might have been arrested. He might have died of um, cholera. Um, but some people think he was taken up by angels into heaven. Um, and to this day, he's remembered as a miracle worker and one of the founders of the church in, in India and, and northern India. Some fascinating figures this week, um, the first week after Trinity. <clears throat>